Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this is Reset. Well, there were warnings. The best advice is to to keep the bubble small. And warnings ignored. We just felt like, okay, well, it doesn't seem like it's getting any better, so, I mean, we might as well just... Try to just have a little bit of fun. There was cooking. Separate two eggs. Put them in the turkey. What you put in that turkey? And there was classic holiday table banter. You got the hen, the chicken, and the rooster. The rooster goes with the chicken. So who's having sex with the hen? In all seriousness, Americans tried to balance the need to see family and connect with others against pleas by medical and political figures to stay in place and to try and check this rampaging virus. Joining us now to break down these stories and more, Heather Sharon of WTTW. Heather, welcome back. Happy to be here, Justin. All right. And also WBEZ City Politics reporter Becky Vivi. Becky, welcome back. Hi, Justin. All right. Happy Thanksgiving to both of you. Now, Heather, despite all the new cases, despite all the new deaths, despite all the calls to stay at home, millions of Americans decided to travel for this holiday weekend. They sure did. And that means in about 14 days, we could see a real surge in cases, not only in Chicago and Illinois, but nationwide. And I think a lot of public health officials, not to be cute about it, are are holding their breath about what that will mean for the healthcare and hospitals system. Becky, I mean, Mayor Lori Lightfoot said she was worried about the Thanksgiving uh, holiday being a super spreader event. How does the city prepare for something like that? The one thing that I heard Dr. Arwady say, the the public health commissioner say on, was it Tuesday or Wednesday, even if everybody had stayed home, we're still going to see hospitalizations and deaths go up because they always lag behind cases. Mm -hmm. So as we've been seeing this huge spike in cases and this exponential growth in cases, we are going to see the hospitalizations kind of follow in weeks to come. So if you think about it, you know, she used you know, again, not to make light of it, but she mentioned this meme going around, better to have a a Zoom Thanksgiving than an ICU Christmas. I think that that is something that she and her department, as well as all the area hospitals, are really bracing themselves for potential increases to come, kind of regardless of what happens for Thanksgiving, but even, you know, counting Mm -hmm. outward from Thanksgiving, you know, mid to late December, what are we going to see with hospitalizations? Yeah, and Heather, how are hospitals in Chicago holding up? I mean, is this something we need to make more of a priority, more of a story about how they're faring? It's an incredibly dangerous time right now. So in the last month, the number of patients admitted to the hospital after being diagnosed with COVID-19 have quadrupled. And that is true for those patients who then were admitted into ICU. And we're also, as Becky said, we're, we're on track for literally hundreds of deaths 
in Illinois and, you know, between now and the end of the year. And, you know, it's it's already the day after Thanksgiving, so there's not that much more of 2020 left to go. And I think one of the things that I've been sort of keeping an eye on is whether or not state and local officials reopen hospitals like Metro South in Blue Island and the former Sherman Hospital in Elgin. Now, at the peak of the pandemic, if you can remember back that far, those hospitals were sort of put on standby along with the field hospital at um, McCormick Place. So there are no plans right now to reopen that McCormick Place hospital. But if hospitals do get overwhelmed, you will see that those two hospitals reopen to sort of provide excess capacity or additional capacity. That means that things are very, very dire. No, oh, man. When we when we start thinking about that and, and about hospitals, and then you start thinking about, well, the light at the end of the tunnel is the vaccines that, that came out at the, some were talking at the beginning of this week about distribution plans that could go into effect in just a couple of weeks. You know, I head scratch a little bit about whether or not Chicago, the state of Illinois, and the Midwest is ready for something like that. One of the things I had been asking both the, the Chicago Department of Public Health and the Illinois Department of Public Health is who falls into the first-in-line category or, or how many, yeah, not right. so much who. They've answered who, but how many. And IDPH has not really sent me a number, but the Chicago Department of Public Health did provide a number to me that said there are 400,000 health care workers in the city of Chicago that would kind of fall into that frontline worker category. Now, the one thing that I should remind folks and maybe don't know, and I didn't know this actually, is that when it comes to distribution from the federal government, a lot of it, it will be dictated by the federal government. Okay. But Chicago is kind of its own state on the list to get distribution. So everything in Illinois, they will get a they will get a shipment, and then Chicago will get a sort of separate shipment. And that's true of some other big cities as well. They will get their own separate shipments, separate from states. Yeah. Um, and and I think the the real tricky thing will be, and and Dr. Arwady and Dr. Zike have both said this is. They're making a lot of plans, but they're watching that December, I believe it's December 10th or December 11th is the date that the FDA set to look at the results from the two uh, leading vaccines and make a decision and kind of whether or not they're going to emergency authorize. And then it's going to be up to the companies of how many doses can they actually get. And that number has also been changing, as Heather yeah. could probably weigh in. Yeah, Heather, well. you're absolutely the number right. Every other day. Is every like other day. Different number. I, I, I saw that story. I think I was watching the 10 o'clock news on Monday or Tuesday. And they said, well, they said that there's going to be this many. And now there's only going to be this many. And it, it was just confusing. But why are those numbers changing? And is that something that uh, we should expect to change even further? I think you should expect to see it change because the quickest time for a company to develop. Uh, a vaccine was four years. We're like at the six, seven, eight month mark. So this is really an incredibly fast timeline. So it's also unclear sort of how much capacity these companies are. And there are two different vaccines that we're talking about here. The other question is, is what capacity do cities and states have to start rolling out this vaccine? And and Becky and I have both heard Dr. Arwady um, talk about how Chicago was in a better place at the beginning of the pandemic. But the question is, has that head start been sufficient? And really, what will it mean for Chicago's hospital systems? Because, you know, Chicago, as we've learned, is sort of part of this whole, you know, statewide healthcare ecosystem. So even if Chicago does a great job, its hospitals would have to take overflow from other parts of the state that might mm-hmm. not be as well prepared. And it could be, again, sort of a domino effect where Chicago might be keeping its head above 
water, so to speak, but sort of complicated by the fact that it has to be part of this whole statewide healthcare system. Yeah, yeah Justin, one other thing I think people should keep in mind is, and again, going back to there's 400,000 healthcare workers in Chicago alone. If you're just a general population person, you probably will not be getting called up for a vaccine until you know, summer of next year. I'm, I'm just going to be conservative, summer or fall of next mm-hmm. year. And if you are a frontline worker or say you are in a long-term care facility, you work in you know, a nursing home or you are living in a nursing home, there's going to be waves of these things. And there could be ten- potentially two doses. One of these vaccines requires two doses, you know, so there's going to be a whole process throughout the whole year 2021 in which uh, we will all be queuing up, if you will, to figure out, you know, when is it our turn? Where do we go? I also should note the federal government has some agreements with pharmacies like Walgreens and CVS. Mm. So they will also be playing a role when it comes time to distribute. Again, details, exact details of all of that is still TBD. You're worried that the lines at your local uh, pharmacy were long now. (laughs) Think about (laughs) 2021. Uh, All right. So, Heather, Stay-at-home advisories versus stay-at-home mandates and orders. That's really that's all that's left in the toolbox for some of our local leaders. If there is indeed a Thanksgiving surge, do you see uh, in your crystal ball whether or not the governor or the mayor would go from advisory to order? Well, they have said as much that they will have no choice but to do that. And I think what's really important is that when you get to a place that the hospitals are overwhelmed and and things are particularly bad around the Kankakee area, if you don't have any beds left in hospitals. That means people leaving their houses and perhaps they get into a car accident or perhaps, you know, they trip and fall and they need to go to the hospital. There's no capacity for them. So the stay-at-home order is really designed not only to stop the spread of the coronavirus, but also to prevent the average, everyday, horrible accidents from sending more people to the hospitals because there aren't simply room for them. Mm. And, you know, that's why they will have no choice but to impose those orders simply because of the hospital system. That's Heather Sharon of WTTW, also long for this roundup, WBEZ's Becky Vivi. Well, COVID-19 may be dominating the news, but there were other big stories this week, including these. We've just passed a budget unlike any other in Chicago's history. It just made it. In a close vote by Chicago City Council standards, the alderman passed Mayor Lightfoot's pandemic budget. The final vote, 29 to 11, and the property tax hike was approved with even one less vote. Don't give me crumbs and tell me it's cake. Ladies and gentlemen, we are becoming the next Detroit. Due to these achievements, I've decided to vote yes. I, unfortunately stand to be counted as a no vote on this budget today. Separately, the Cook County budget was also approved today, this time unanimously. It cuts 500 vacant jobs and uses reserves to balance the Cook County budget. Don't give me crumbs and call it a cake. That's a great Chicago political quote. So let's talk city politics right now on WBEC's weekly news roundup. Heather, in an era when city council is meeting on Zoom and we don't have a chance to stick a mic in front of someone's face, political junkies like us are just dying for quotes like that. That's right. And Alderman Taylor has been 
uh, a non-stop source of just <laughs> pithy quotes since her election in 2019. And I think she really spoke for the progressive aldermen who voted against that budget. And it was, you know, I think a close vote really by any standard. The mayor needed 26 votes to pass both the budget and then the property tax levy. The property tax levy only passed with 28 votes. So, you know, that is really not a whole lot of votes to spare. And I think along with a lot of other progressive aldermen, Alderman Taylor said that this budget just did not do enough to protect the most vulnerable Chicagoans. And particularly, most of those most vulnerable Chicagoans are Black and Latino. Mm -hmm. And it was hard for a lot of aldermen to sort of vote yes, especially in the wake of just the the massive Black Lives Matter protests this summer, and sort of a renewed acknowledgement that so much of the city is sort of still struggling to reverse the embedded systematic racism in the city. And, and that being said, uh, the mayor relied heavily on uh, aldermen who serve black and Latino wards in this city uh, and, and was able to get it passed. And she said, you know, this is how democracy works. You, you're not supposed to have a rubber stamp uh, city council. We're supposed to have dissent. We're supposed to have conversation. It should be closer uh, than it has been in the past. Right. A couple of key concessions, I think, that played a role in getting some yes votes. One, even more additional money for violence prevention. And then there was also an agreement, essentially, to do a pilot, not just co-responder model. People have been hearing about Mm -hmm. this 911 response when you send, right now, Chicago sends police to the scene, and they wanted to do this co-responder where they would send mental health professionals and police. Mm -hmm. And there were people, you know, even on the far progressive side of things that were like, no, no, we need a model in which you only send a mental health response in certain cases where, you know, police really are not necessary whatsoever. So she did commit to that and, and committed a little bit of funding there. The tricky thing is it's not a lot of funding, right. and it's not like you heard Jeanette Taylor. It's, you don't give me crumbs and tell me it's cake. Yeah, right. This is a woman who, you know, went on a hunger strike because the school, the high school in her neighborhood was closed, you know. So this is somebody who comes from deep in the community and who is now in a position of power and doesn't want to say, oh, well, that's good enough. And I think there's a lot right now being uh, made of the sort of split in the progressive caucus. We had people like Marie Haddon of Rogers Park and Andre Vasquez of the 40th Ward where Pat O'Connor used to reign. And he, um, they both voted yes, progressive caucus. We've been talking a lot about the split there. But as Heather mentioned, there was also a lot of people who voted against this that are typical Lightfoot area supporters, Mm -hmm. um, more wealthy, more white wards, homeowning wards on the north, far northwest and southwest sides, all of their aldermen, for the most part, voted against this. Even allies of her, Tom Tunney, Harry Osterman, both voted against this budget. And I think losing those votes meant she had to go kind of look for support from others. Those are great names to throw out. I mean, Tom Tunney represents Lakeview, uh, Wrigleyville area, and Boys mm-hmm. Town, or the neighborhood formerly known as Boys Town. Harry Osterman up into Edgewater and Rogers Park. But, and you also had some no votes that were, you know, uh, or at least uh, against the property tax levy uh, in, in the 19th Ward in Beverly. I love this stuff. I get, <laughs> I get so jacked up for it. But I just well, love it, too, because it's changed the demographics. It's fun to watch how this city council is different than the ones before. 
you know, to Lightfoot's point, it's healthy, I guess, for the democracy of our city to to really debate these issues and, and not do everything behind closed doors yeah, with, right. in unanimous votes. Well, Heather, I mean, there's obviously there's immediate concerns, there's money concerns, there's property tax increases. It's going to have an impact. Uh, you know, I don't want to make it less. But when you just talk about the politics of it, when we just talk about the fact that the allegiances of, I mean, this is not your father's city council. I mean, you're, the allegiances are dead. There's everyone's independent. You saw Andre Vasquez, who didn't vote with the uh, Democratic Socialists. They censured him. Maria Haddon's voting yes, uh, part of the Progressive Caucus. You would never have that even uh, during uh, Mayor Emanuel's term or before. No, you wouldn't, um, which isn't to say that there wasn't just as much sort of horse trading or give or take behind the scenes. But Mayor Emanuel and the mayor's daily before him, they conducted these negotiations behind the scenes. And that's very different than the way that Mayor Lightfoot has chosen to, to run her operation. And I certainly, you know, appreciate that most of this is sort of taking place, you know, in public and sort of, you know, we can keep an eye on it. But the question remains sort of, is this a lasting sort of dissenting, you know, sort of group mm-hmm. of aldermen. And I think you're right to point out that it's it's really a motley group of aldermen. You know, Alderman mm-hmm. Matt O'Shea, who voted with Alderman Jeanette Taylor, they don't have a lot in common on really anything. They were aligned on this vote, which is, I think, what makes it so interesting was that it was opposed by aldermen sort of most focused on the impact of what it would mean for the, the poorest Chicagoans. Mm-hmm. And you had aldermen who voted no because they're wealthy, primarily white residents did not want to pay more in property taxes. And I don't know that there's an ability to sort of make sweeping sort of generalizations about what's going forward. However, I I think that it shows that at a minimum that Mayor Lightfoot's sort of initial approach of we're going to do things differently, mm-hmm. it, you know, it might not actually be all that different in the end. What does this mean for Mayor Lightfoot? I mean, because she'll say, hey, we won and, uh, you know, obviously this is a new day and we want to see this. And I love the, the concept of the, the policy decisions being done in the public as a, behind closed doors. I love that. At the end of this process, where does Mayor Lightfoot stand? I think she would say, look, I governed to 26. That's what she said after the council meeting. I got 26 and we're, we're moving on. But I think that the issue is, is that she campaigned in 2019 on sort of a new era in city government. And I think that she has repeatedly clashed with progressive aldermen and progressive groups, which means that she is certainly vulnerable to a re-election challenge from her left. And the question is, do voters on the more center, center-right um, sort of political alignment in Chicago, are they so angry in 2023 about this property tax hike that they find somebody else who's more centrist than she is? And, you know, I think that Mayor Lightfoot has proven during her time in office to be not necessarily a, a progressive, but a reformer. And if we judge her on that basis, the fact of the matter is, is that she has not fulfilled her um, promise to end aldermanic prerogative, giving each alderman sort of the ability to sort of be a little mayor in his or her war. And so that question becomes, where does she go from here? She only got 28 votes on the property tax hike. 
are there 28 votes to reduce the power of the city council further? I don't think that is. And so what does she go to voters with in 2022 and 2023? I don't know that, you know, she has figured out sort of how to figure out that balance, especially during a moment in Chicago politics when really the progressive movement is just so energized and descendant. Yeah. All right. My last thing will be about Mike Madigan. He does not have the votes to be reelected speaker. That doesn't mean that somebody else is going to be reelected speaker. This is this is brand new territory for the state of Illinois and its politics, because uh, Mike Madigan, since Democratic when Democrats have have had the majority in the House, has been the speaker since 1983. Mm. What what happens here? Do you expect both of you? And I'll ask this quickly because then we'll wrap. But do you expect that he becomes speaker again? Do you think that he does some horse trading here in the next month and a half and he gets the votes? Well, well, I I'll think the question is who would, who would, who's going to go up against him? Yeah, no, I agree. You can't beat somebody like Michael Madigan with nobody. And that's what it comes down to. So if you show me somebody who's, you know, getting into double digits in terms of speaker votes, then I'll take it seriously. But until then, you know, in the immortal words of Omar on the wire, if you come at the pen, you best not miss. (laughs) (laughs) That's Heather Sharon of WTTW and Becky Vivi of WBEZ. Becky, Heather, thanks for joining us this week on The Roundup. Well, that's it for this week's Roundup, and it's it for me. Uh, When Jen White left for 1A, I was asked to come in and be the interim host of this program, and I'm very happy to have done that. Uh, Coming up in just two weeks, Sasha Ann Simons takes over as the new host of Reset, and I couldn't be more excited. She is a wonderful host, someone that I listened to on 1A all throughout the summer before Jen took over there. And it'll be exciting to have her here as uh, the host of this very fine program. Meanwhile, keep it right here. WBEZ Suzanne is in the host chair next week. Thanks again for everything. I'm Justin Kaufman, and this has been the Weekly News Roundup from WBEZ Chicago. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.